0: Hello, you're listening to Dr. Baz of Grace Life Church in Naples, Florida. Thank you for joining us as we open God's Word. And may God's Spirit speak a personal word to you through it. When I, my brothers and my sister Nyla were kids, we attended church regularly. By regularly, I mean (laughs) we, uh, we always went and only ever went on Christmas and Easter. And, and that was because our dad was the station commander of the military base, and he was expected to be the one to read the scripture on those occasions. Oh, we have a photo of us all going to church, uh, dressed up to the nines. We, we looked like five pheasants, and uh, and we were no more spiritually alive than, than a game bird. So... Uh, When I look back at that, I thought, well, what were we thinking at the time? I think we probably thought we were pretty good people. And, uh, you know, if there is a God, then, and there are expectations, we we were probably meeting them. Well, we certainly didn't take that question seriously, did we? But the question that plagues many sincere Christians is just this, what does God expect of me? Well, in Matthew 25, 14 to 30, it's the passage before us that Leroy just read. God answers this question. Let's look at it. Again, it. Well, what's it? It takes us back to the first verse where it's speaking of the kingdom of heaven. So it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money. By the way, the Greek doesn't say of money. Just says five talents to another two talents to another one talent each according to his ability and then he went on his journey now there's some disagreement as to the exact value of a talent and and the reason for that is a talent is actually a measure of weight well assuming that you're measuring silver coins which is the most common currency of the day do you know that one talent would be worth, in today's money, about $600,000? So, uh, that means that the guy that got five talents got $3 million, the one that got two talents got one point two billion, million, and the person with only one talent was nevertheless given $600,000. But, but the clue to the meaning of the parable is the phrase that we find in verse 14, which is, "...he entrusted his property." The Greek means his possessions, his, his property, his possessions he entrusted to them. So this is the story of a rich man who's going on a journey and he entrusts his possessions to three different individuals. So what are these possessions and these talents? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For Who makes you any different from anybody else? And what do you have that you didn't receive? Ah, so we understand what it's meaning now. It's every single thing that you have, you've received. That is, it's on loan to you. Your health, your abilities, your opportunities, your time, it's all on loan. And, and so the parable is really about, about God loaning out a life to three separate individuals. Two of them put it to work. They invest their life in the kingdom of God and they double what they were given and one of them buries it and invests none of his life in the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at the the, the chapter, it's important to know that it follows a pattern of thought. In the previous chapter, that's chapter 24, it's all about the last days before Jesus' return. And then the first 13 verses of this chapter is all about the importance of watching and being ready for Christ's return. And then you get to verse 14 to 30, which is our passage, which is all about how not to be ready when Jesus returns. And then you go to verse 31 to 46, and you read of the day of accountability, the day of judgment, that is after Christ's return, which did, where he determines whether you were ready or whether you weren't. So our passage is essentially how not to be ready. Uh, and that's what we're going to consider as we answer the question, what does God expect of me? Look at verse 15. 20 gave five talents of money to the other two talents, to the another one talent, each according to his ability, and then he went on his journey. So the first thing that you observe is that everybody received something with which they were expected to invest in his kingdom. Now, Think about that. If one talent, and we're weighing silver, is worth $600,000, then one talent in anything else, we're talking about here, the least gifted believer, is still very, very valuable to the kingdom of God. Now, what do I need my talents? What do I need my gifts? What do I need God's possessions that he's allowed me to, to be steward of? What do I need him for? 1 Timothy 1, five, five, 8, I uh, beg your pardon, says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith that is wor- worse than an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians fourteen twelve says, Try to excel in gifts that build up the church. So your first responsibilities are to your biological family and to your spiritual family, which is the body of Christ. But then 1 Corinthians 12, 7, speaking of the gifts of the Spirit, says, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So whoever God's providence brings down the winding path of life uh, past you that you are supposed to minister to uh, is also what your gifts and abilities and resources are for. Um, And this means that no believer can say whether he's wrongly imprisoned, in the South of America, or whether he's sitting on a throne somewhere in Europe, no believer can say, I I, I can't count much for the kingdom of God. What you think is a small gift that you imagine that you have is of immense value to the kingdom of God. Do you know when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin of Apollo 11 were attempting to take off from the moon, they discovered that the button that they had to press for liftoff had snapped off. They would have been stranded permanently on the moon had Buzz Aldrin not brought with him a ballpoint pen, which happened to fit perfectly in the hole left by the broken-off button. Somebody said, something that cost 10 cents turned out to be the most valuable item in the space program. So it is with our gifts. Everybody receives something, and whatever you received is immensely valuable. The other thing we can see is that not everybody received the same or equal gifts, verse 15. To one he gives five talents, to another two to another, and we add the word only, one talent. Now, of course, people are going to say, well, that's just not fair. Life isn't fair. God hasn't let it be fair. Well, the Bible, anticipating your answer, uh, your question, your query, uh, has provided us with an answer that God considers adequate. Romans 9.20, who are you to talk back to God and shall what is formed say to him that formed it, why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? So God offers equal employment, equal opportunity, but not equal gifts. And actually, he doesn't need to, does he? Because he only needs to give sufficient gifts for the task and the calling of each individual. You know, that seems to be a simple truth that is is fading away from the minds of people today. Governments need to learn this. As As you look at the governments, they're... They're trying to achieve some sort of equality, and, and by doing this through the process of employing people by quota, you you got to have transsexuals uh, represented in this department. Uh, We've got to make sure there are not too many whites. You know, I, I was looking online and in 2020, Seventy percent of all football players in the NFL were black. I wonder if these people who 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 want to do everything by quota suggest that twenty percent of all people in the uh, pl- football players in the NFL should be fired who are black, just simply so that we can fill them with white players in order to bring about equality. And then, of course, you haven't brought about any equality whatsoever because what about the Chinese? You know, where does this end? The the NFL doesn't hire people based upon the color of their skin, but entirely on the basis of their gifts and their talents. You you think about it, who would you want operating on you? You you want the best surgeon operating on you, or you want somebody who only graduated medical school because he filled a quota? Uh, Who who do you want piloting your airplane? You you want the best pilot out there, or or do you want somebody who's only behind the the joystick simply because they needed a quota in some ethnic group. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, not everybody is, receives the same or equal gifts. That's a fact. And that is incredibly helpful for, for when you find out what it is that God does want you to do. You'll find you have just the gifts for it. Now, if everybody did have the same or equal gifts, there would, of course, be terrible consequences. Uh, If everybody were a teacher, there'd be nobody in the class. Uh, If everybody was called into leadership, there'd be a lot of fighting in homes. Uh, Jack Palance wrote, if all had the gift of administration, well, everybody would be lining up something for somebody to do who couldn't do it because he's too busy lining up something else for someone to do who couldn't do it for the same reasons. 1 Corinthians twelve seven says, look, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? It's all very basic, simple wisdom. Now, the fact that everybody doesn't receive the same gifts or equal gifts also is instructive because it tells us a number of things, one of which is we, we should never belittle other people's gift. As 1 Corinthians 12, 21 says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or the the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Or on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So having two talents doesn't mean less to God than having ten talents. Any more than your two eyes mean less to you than your ten fingernails. It's absurd. Somebody wrote, it's not what God's got for you, it's what God's got of you. It's not what you've been given, it's what you've given back to God that counts. Remember that lovely story in, in John chapter 6, verse 9, where, where a small boy is presumably carrying his lunch, has five small barley loaves and two fish, and he gives them to Jesus. That's... That's all he had to give. But in Jesus's hands, they're used to feed over 5,000 people. And that's the whole idea. It, it's, it's giving your gifts or tiny gift to the kingdom of God, putting it in the hands of Jesus, which is what changes the world. It's not a gift. It's, it's, it's who's in possession of these gifts. Paul Fritz, he said that he was going to go fishing with his pals in a canal. And as of two days in the future, and uh, unfortunately, he cut his foot, and that wouldn't have been a problem. But the dye in his old sock poisoned the wound, and so he had to miss the trip. Well, while staying behind, he learned that there was an evangelist holding a tent meeting. And, And because absolutely nothing ever happened in that small town, he thought, well, I'll just go. Check out the spectacle. And he heard the gospel, and he gave his life to Christ. And later he said, God used an old sock to bring me to Christ. We're not to belittle other people's gifts. Well, you've only got that. That's all you you know how to do. And uh, by the same token, we're not to boast about our gifts either. There are entire groups who believe, unlike you, that they are spiritually filled. You're not. And the reason they know they're spiritually filled and you're not is because they've received the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, in exactly the same way, there's many people who think that somebody who's been given the gift of preaching must be spiritual because, after all, he's a preacher. I think the last number of years have shown how faulty that thinking is. Your gifts do not tell anybody how spiritual you are. Uh, Romans 11:29 says, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That means if you're the most gifted preacher in America, that says nothing about your spiritual condition. You could be horribly backslidden. But God's not going to remove the gift. Why? Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You cannot look at your gifts to gauge how spiritual you are. You have to look not at the gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. So when provoked, if the fruit of the Spirit is still evident, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, temperance, faith, if all of that is intact, then uh, that's a far better Gauge of of how you're doing. So, we're not to belittle other people's gifts, not to boast about our own, but we're to believe in the diversity of people's gifts. Uh, And and boy, is there diversity, Uh, whether it be a spiritual gift or whether it be a natural gift. We've said it before if you're five foot two, you can be sure that God did not call you to play professional basketball. Uh, But whatever it is He did call you to, five foot two will do fine. It's very important to know this, very helpful. A guy came to me for counselling years ago and, um, and he said, you know, I just, I, I don't know what to do for a career. Well, I said to him, uh, pardon me, but my skill set is, is, is insufficient to help you with what you should be doing for your career. Well, then he answered, well, the problem is, you see, my skill set's huge. And he said, my problem is I've got the skills and the talent to do everything if I just try hard enough. Well, with the tiny amount of wisdom that I was in possession of at the time, I actually said to him, do, do you think that what stands between you and being Michelangelo Bronorati Bronerati and painting the Sistine Chapel is a mere case of you not trying hard enough? That sort of changed the tone of the conversation. He left, but you know, later he phoned me. And he said, you know, uh, I thought about that. And it really helped. Yeah, it, it really will help. You know, as Gerald Clint Eastwood said, a man's got to know his limitations. It's very helpful to know what it is that I'm bad at. This is the same as what I'm good at. And, and so I can find what it is that God is asking me to do. Because when you're doing what God's asked you to do, it's a joy. You fit. Don't belittle others. Don't boast about yourself but believe in and uh, and celebrate the diversity of everybody's gifts. Well, we looked at the diversification of those gifts. Now, let's look at the discharging of those gifts. Look at verse 16. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents and gained two more. Remember Luke 12, 48 says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be expected. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more shall be asked. So the more opportunities God gives you for using your gifts or your gift, the more responsible you will be for discharging them. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says, now it is required that those who have been entrusted with something that they prove faithful. There's two groups of people that call themselves Christians, and there's those who are faithful and those who are completely unfaithful. Let's look at the faithful first. Actually, the faithful fall into two categories, the dependable and the not very dependable. Look at verse 16 again. Again, the man who had received five talents went out, notice these words, at once, and put his money to work. Faithful, dependable people obey God without procrastinating. They're dependable. First, Timothy 4.14 says, don't neglect the gift that you have. And then you have the faithful. They're they're saved, but they're not very dependable. Um, They're not very prompt in their obedience. I read a poem this week that said, I spent a fortune on a trampoline, a stationary bike and a rowing machine, complete with gadgets to read my pulse and gadgets to prove my progress results and others to show the miles I've charted. But they left off the gadget to get me started (laughs) you know jim henry jim henry the great jim henry he tells this story about a farmer in alabama who was out plowing one day and and a piece of paper blew across the farmyard and then it suddenly wrapped itself around his plow handle and he picked it up and it said uh, wanted a man with two phds speaks three foreign languages and has published at least two books and, and then it gives the address somewhere down in New York City, a, a certain building and up the 40th floor. So he went home, he took a bath, he put on his bath clothes and he got on a bus to New York City. He found the building, went up to the 40th floor, met the receptionist who looked at him kind of funny and he said, well, I've come about this ad in the newspaper, I showed it to her. She said, oh, that's great. And then she ushered him into the office of the president of the company and the president lo- also looked at him kind of funny. And so we'll sit down, so what are you here for? And he said, well... I saw this ad in the paper, and it says, wanted a man with two PhDs, three foreign languages, and has published at least two books. And the president said, that's exactly right. Are you the man? And he said, I just came to tell you, don't depend on me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a lot of church people like that. Uh, the last church, not the last church, this is a church in Germany. There was a deacon whose responsibility was, was to teach the teachers' training union, but he kept bugging me, could I please be his backup? And after he press-ganged me enough, I finally conceded and thought I'd be his backup. I don't know that I really had the time for it. Well, you know, from that moment onwards, that guy hardly ever showed up. <laughs> he always had an excuse why I had to teach it in his place, and he couldn't do it. But at least 50% of the time, I was teaching What does God expect of me? He expects you to be dependable. So there's the faithful, but then notice there's the unfaithful. These people don't do anything for the kingdom of God, and they don't do anything for the kingdom of God ever. Look at verse 18. But the man who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Ah. You remember the parable of the sower? Three of the four soils never produced anything at all. didn't matter how much seed was thrown, sown onto them. didn't produce anything. So there's this group of people that call themselves Christians, but whether it's in church or whether it's at home or abroad or at their place of work, they never do anything for God. Something that they did or didn't do because it would honor God. Many people are are, are like Bob Buell, who was the old Milwaukee baseball player who during the World Series, a reporter came up to him and asked him, he said, well, Mr. Buell, what are you you gonna do when the series is over? And he said, well, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna help my daddy. And he said, oh, what does your daddy do? Nothing. A lot of church people like that. Uh, What's wrong with these people? What's wrong with this group? Notice, first of all, they're spiritually dead. Verse 26, his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. Verse 30, throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Being a servant doesn't mean you're saved, you know a lot of people serving a lot of people, and it doesn't mean anything. In fact, they're doing no serving, if you actually look at the text. So he, they're not saved. Genuine converts are never called by God wicked. Uh, in fact, you know what they're called? They're called the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Um, they're never called worthless. If you look at the passage starting at Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it is the unconverted who are described there as worthless. And then, of course, they're never in danger of being damned and thrown out to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because Jesus said in John chapter 6, I have come down not to do my will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone the Father has given me. I I shall lose none of them, and I shall raise them all up on the last day. So we're talking here about professing Christians who live unapologetically wicked lives, and who are never under conviction? John MacArthur describes them perfectly when he says they have received the light, but not the life; the seed, but not the fruit; the written word, not the living word; the truth, but not a love for the truth. They're spiritually dead, and and what is something that is typical about them? They have a very poor view of God. Look at verse 24. Then the man who had received the one talent came and, and said, Master, he said, I I, I knew you're a hard man, the harvesting where you have not sowed, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. These are people who, who form their opinions about who God is, not really not from scripture, but what they think God should be like. These are people who are very quick to blame God when when they encounter a trial. Tom Holliday wrote, all the important things of life revolve around how you think about God, even if you don't think about God at all. It determines the way you look at your problems, the way you look at your future, and of course, the way you look at your relationships. And of course, I might add to that, it determines exactly your view of God as to whether you'd love God. Very often people will say, I, I, I don't have anything to do with God because of, and they'll describe something that has nothing to do with God. That's their view of God. But you have the biblical view of God. As you grow in knowledge, you're renewed in knowledge. Jesus said, I'll reveal the Father to you and continue to reveal the Father to you so that the love that God has for me might be in you. The more you know who God really is, the more that you love God. On the other hand, of course, if you have a terrible view of God, which you've got yourself over because you've manufactured it by an increasingly disappointing understanding of God that you've manufactured it through your problems, then you're either going to detest God. You may go to church, but uh, you'll either detest him or, or or you'll be afraid of him. That's actually what we see here, verse 24. I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you did not gather, uh, not sown, I beg your pardon, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. That means afraid of you. And what kind of fear was this? A fear that drew him to God? No, drew him away from God. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Okay, so what does God want from me? First of all, get saved. Get to know God. Believe the gospel that the only way your sins can be dealt with is that Christ loved you, came to this earth for you, seeking sinners, and then he went to the cross and bore your sin and suffered your punishment. You should have suffered in your place so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you repent of your sins, acknowledge them before God, turn from them and put your faith in Jesus Christ and, and and God will change your life. He'll save you. And then on a daily basis, what are we reading here? You've got to have a right view of God, which you can only get from the scriptures. That's what he wants. That's called sanctification. Sanctify them through the truth. The word is truth. And then, of course, be faithful, prompt to obey, regardless of your fears. If if that's a list that's too long, let's look at it in one sentence. Use everything that God has given you for jesus christ for god's glory for god's kingdom what difference is that going to make well in this life verse 29 says for everyone who has will be given more and you will have an abundance and whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him you'll be given more you'll be god will make what you do more useful in the kingdom of god that's what difference it'll make What about in the next life Verse 23, his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with many, with few things, so I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. What about those who bury their gifts? People who who may go to church every week, but on no occasion during, d- during the week, they just live wicked lives, never under conviction, never do anything for God. What about them? Verse 30, and throw that worthless servant outside into darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the commitment is very simple. It's, if you want to know what God wants from us, it's out of love for him to use everything that we have for him. For Jesus, for his glory, for his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, um, fairest Lord Jesus, uh, let us consider what we have as not our own. And may we, uh, though it's very little, may we give it to you and know that you will do great mighty things with it. Because it's only in your hands that it's worth anything anyway. We ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Uh, I'm going to give you a benediction, which is um, kind of a prayer as well. It's from Hebrews 13, verse 20. Uh, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant that brought Jesus back from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. He'll give you all the talents, all the gifts that you need. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So go and, uh, and uh, live for him and with him. Thank you for listening to Dr. Bez. Tune in next week as we continue studying the Word of God. May God bless you.